I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This has been an incredible four years. Uh, We've accomplished so much together. There had been fierce speculation about whether the military would have to remove Donald Trump from the White House. But when he left, addressing a small crowd of his staff and family before boarding the presidential plane down to Florida, it was more with a whimper than a bang. I want to thank all of the great people of Washington, D.C., all of the people that we worked with to put this miracle together. So have a good life. We will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Nobody believed that was the last we'd see of Donald Trump. But nobody knew what would come next. He has continued to persist in this belief that the election was stolen. That is derangement. One man did more than most to lift the lid on the chaos of the Trump White House in a devastating series of books. The first, an international bestseller, prompted a barrage of legal threats. Lawyers representing President Trump are threatening a lawsuit to prevent the publication of Michael Wolff's new book, Fire and Fury, inside the Trump White House. So it was quite a shock when Michael Wolff, one of Donald Trump's most hated writers, was invited down to Mar-a-Lago to interview the man himself. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Michael Wolff. Inside the mind of Donald Trump. Michael Wolff's first two books, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, and Siege, Trump Under Fire, made headlines around the world for their revelations about the chaos unfolding in the Oval Office. They also made headlines for drawing some fire and fury of their own from the then-president, Donald Trump. So when he embarked on his third book, Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency, Michael Wolff knew it wouldn't be welcomed by the former president. But then he got a phone call. Donald Trump had heard he was writing again and wanted to meet at Mar-a-Lago, his resort in Florida. I was sort of brought to the couch where he likes to receive people. Um, And then he came in and he saw me and his face lit up like, you know, he hadn't seen his best friend in, in quite some time. 
I mean, that must have been a surprise. Well, I didn't know what to expect, frankly. And I was sort of thinking, okay, you know, he's going to dress me down and I'm going to get a tongue lashing. On the other hand, he had invited me. So I, I was really unclear what to expect here. But anyway, he sees me. He seems like it's impossible he could be happier that I am really the light of his life. And then he sits down, he kind of touches my leg, and he says, you know, those books you wrote about me, they were very mean and very wrong, but I don't blame you. I blame my people. And then we were off and running, could not have had a, a, a better time. You know, we spoke probably for two hours. I mean, spoke, you have to understand this. This is not a conversation in the fashion in which you and I would have a conversation. He just talks, he broadcasts. He's a monologist. It's not really a back and forth. So with that in mind, how did you approach the interview? I knew that there was really no possibility that you're going to be able to challenge Donald Trump on anything that he says. A, because he doesn't listen to you. B, because most of this is, or a good amount of this is autopilot, because his mind does not work in typical responsive fashion. So I just gave up. I mean, I've been there before. I know you can't say, but when you said this, you know, and then you said this over here, well, how do you justify this apparent discrepancy? You might say that to any other politician who, by the way, then they would have a canned response to that. But he, he doesn't even have the canned response. He just ignores you or he stops talking to you. It's and, and Anyway, you're not going to be able to have that kind of traditional and typical journalistic conversation with him. That's so interesting. Yeah. How do you prepare for that conversation? I mean, what do you do? You kind of have to accept his premise and then basically let him hang himself. I mean, all you can hope to do is to get a window into into his thinking. It would be useless if you hoped that you were going to challenge his thinking or change his thinking or get him to explain his thinking. So you have to go in another way. So I have merely accepted the premise of the stolen election. Okay, if this election was stolen, what do you think you won by? What are the real numbers here? Okay, you know, stealing on an election is a big undertaking. Who are the people who actually stole this election from you? And the discussion that we have, and most of this, or a good part of this appears in Landslide, is you see his mental process going on by which he has come to genuinely believe that this election was stolen. And that's completely kind of a lunatic understanding of this with weird math and, you know, a weird sense of conspiracy and an overlay of logic or illogic of a type that I think one might seldom experience. So you get a phone call inviting you to Mar-a-Lago, which is almost mythical as his, his home now. Tell me what it was like going to see him there. The really interesting thing is that Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, lives in a country club. That's what Mar-a-Lago is. You know, it's not a traditional, as they say, winter White House. It's not the residence of the president of the United States. It's not a retreat. It's a country club. And it's an old-fashioned kind of country club. So it's sort of filled with, you know, these poster board signs, which are prime ribs night or Asian night. That's a good one. Or Italian night, you know, with accordion player. 
And he conducts all of his business there, but not in an office. He conducts his business in the central room, the lobby at Mar-a-Lago, which is a very big room and a very oddly decorated room, kind of part Rococo, part hunting lodge, part Renaissance palazzo. That's why I was so surprised by your description of it being like an old country club with all the signs for karaoke night, because the images we see, the photographs that we see, I mean, I've never been, but the photographs look... A bit Versailles, pre-revolution, you know, it's sort of its big chandeliers, it's gilted and grand. I mean, in a sense, that's a kind of a country club look. It's an old, you know, I guess a 1920s structure and this very big white elephant structure, which you actually, when you're there, you think, well, what else would they have used this for other than a kind of country club? And then he sits in the middle of this, conducting his business right in the middle of the lobby. So everybody can see him. Everybody can hear him. What is that like? What is the court of Donald Trump like? I mean, he's surrounded by the members of the Mar-a-Lago Country Club. He really has no advisors. He has a few minions, functionaries, factotums, you know, who fetch him things. But he doesn't really classically have any advisors. But what he does have is the entire Republican Party coming to pay court to him. And that's what he does literally all day. Well, but he spends a good part of the day playing golf. But the rest of the day, the working part of the day, is Republican politicians are coming to see him, to kiss the ring, to seek his endorsements and his approval. And they all do this out in the open. So everybody can see the Republican Party, you know, kind of slobbering over Donald Trump. I wanted to know, you know, if he is talking at you, why has he agreed to meet you? What is it that he wants this interview to be about? What does he want to get across to the public? The truth is, it doesn't really matter. I'm merely a stand-in for someone to talk to. I mean, he could have the conversation that he had with me with virtually anyone. And he has invited, you know, a variety of reporters down to Mar-a-Lago and I'm sure said largely to them, what he said to me. So it doesn't really matter. And when you see Donald Trump talk to people, you see him, I mean, he can be addressing someone, uh, one person, and then he can just shift his body and the conversation goes on, the same conversation with another person. So there's a sense with him that external reality is completely fungible. It doesn't really matter. It is what he wants it to be. The person in front of him is who he imagines the person to be, or he doesn't even imagine. He doesn't really care. It is just all about Donald Trump talking. I'm so interested in, in what you say about his description of the, the election that he believes was stolen. You said that he genuinely believes that. Was that the impression you got? This isn't just sort of like, you know, the platform he's standing on. No, 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 no. He's completely deranged. This is not a political strategy here. This is not a, a diabolical way to fool the rest of the world. This is not the big lie. I mean, that's just political reporters trying to have to justify this thing. I mean, it is a lie. It's not true. But he absolutely believes it. And I know this because I've spent a fair amount of time talking to him about this. But I've also talked to literally everyone around him. He has so much in the face of all logic to the contrary, of all facts on the ground to the contrary, 
of the beliefs of all of the people around him, including his closest aides, including his family. He has continued to persist in this belief that the election was stolen. So my conclusion is that anybody who, in the face of all of this, in the face of everyone he knows, saying the opposite, you've lost the election, you have to concede the election, he continues to believe otherwise, that is derangement. I mean, that's a very strong word to use, deranged. But tell me about the process of getting there. You mentioned that you talked to people around him who, it sounds like, have now abandoned the belief that the election was stolen. I mean, tell me about some of those conversations. I mean, virtually everyone around him abandoned the belief that the election was stolen. The election day was on Tuesday. I would say by Saturday, there was no one left who believed this except Rudy Giuliani. When I went to bed on election night, he was ahead in all those states, every single one of those states. How is it they all turned around? Or is it more consistent that it was a plan to turn him around? Everybody else, the people he worked for on a daily basis, his lawyers, his children, all by that Saturday were absolutely sure that A, the election was not stolen, number one. Number two, that anything they did, that anything that the president did would not have a meaningful effect on changing that conclusion. And how are those relationships, you know, whether it's with his children or his lawyers, if they're all disagreeing with him, how are those relationships now? Many of those people left him. They got out of the White House. They retreated or they had to, at some level, pretend that they agreed with him. And there were very few of those left at the end. But there were there were some of those people. But even those people even if they pretended to agree with him, it would have been clear to everyone else because they discussed this with each other that this was just saying what had to be said because that is what Donald Trump required. Now, there then became this other group of people led by Rudy Giuliani who saw clear advantage to themselves in supporting what the president needed to hear. And they became the new group of insiders. And I use this word insiders loosely because they didn't really become insiders. They were just the sort of fringe people hanging on who the president would talk to to be able to hear what he wanted to hear. So most of the final days in the Trump White House consisted of all of the professionals. And you can take issue on on what grade of professionals were attracted to the Trump administration. But anyway, all of the people who actually have functioned in clear roles in the executive branch of the United States government, they had departed. Some actually physically had departed, but otherwise psychologically and mentally had departed. They were playing no part in this delusion of the stolen election. And then you had these other people who came in who were just stumble bums. That's a great term. (laughs) Explain that. You know, opportunists, but not even good opportunists. These were all fringe people, barely on any kind of emotional, psychological level, holding it together. I mean, these were all end of the road people. So 
as you had this, you know, you also had the the U.S. media and large parts of the worldwide media, you know, saying that the president was going to steal this election back and he was going to undermine democracy and he was staging a coup and on and on and on, as we heard every day, which was completely preposterous. He wasn't going to do anything. He wasn't capable of doing anything. The people who he had recruited to help him theoretically challenge this election were not able to do that. So it was this truly kind of extraordinary moment in which the president of the United States was deranged, deranged to the point where he couldn't possibly accomplish anything. He couldn't possibly do whatever he said he intended to do. He had no resources to call on within the government itself. It effectively was for all of the people around him, except the stumble bums, it was just a waiting game to January 20th when everyone knew incontrovertibly, without a doubt, that Joe Biden was going to become the next president of the United States. So this was this strange charade that people were allowing Donald Trump to engage in. And there was no no alternative. It wasn't as if you could say to him, go to him and shake him and say, this is not true. This is not going to happen. He lived in this bubble world of derangement. I mean, this is a a fascinating insight into what sounds like a very dysfunctional White House in those last few months, really. Even that, you know, and people, we try to apply these words to it, which are usual political words, dysfunctional. Dysfunctional gives it vastly more credence and logic than it had. This was a, a lunatic who was the president of the United States. I mean, fortunately, such a lunatic that he couldn't really accomplish anything and such a lunatic that everyone knew he was a lunatic who would have been necessary for him to accomplish anything. So we are at a moment in time where the president of the United States has departed all temporal reality. Wow, that's a, a very strong, a very strong claim. While we've, we were watching with real shock, I suppose, here, events unfolding in Washington, D.C. in those last few weeks of the Trump White House, what, we saw his biggest defenders, the people coming out, again, reiterating the claim that the election was stolen, tended to be his children. You know, they they were very much his cheerleaders. What's the position with them now? I know that the behind the scenes, each of the children were very clear that the election had been lost. He was not going to be able to successfully challenge this election and the presidency was going to be over. Having said that, you know, they still have to get along with their father. They're tied to him in ways that they can't untie. And again, you know, it's not as if you can tell Donald Trump something that he doesn't want to hear and engage in a discussion about that and come to some resolution. He just doesn't listen to you. So it's immaterial what they say to him. They're stuck having to pretend that his reality is a tolerable one. And, you know, I mean, right now they're all trying to figure out what the next steps are. I mean, they're not, they're not that different from their father in that. They all went into this presidency being transformed, their profiles being transformed, their their opportunities being transformed, um, and their futures being transformed. They are now world-famous people, and they will all seek to leverage that and monetize that and look for new opportunity. 
And from all of your conversations behind the scenes to the people around the the Trump administration, did you get a sense of which of the children is likely to carry on pursuing a political career? Can we expect to see more of them? Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think that we probably can. But remember, the Trump thing is at best highly unpredictable. They are tied to whatever their father does. Their father is the sun and they merely orbit around it. It remains unclear what Donald Trump will do. The direction that Trump and Trumpism is heading now is that he has this remarkable control over the Republican Party. And unless that is broken in some way, he will remain one of the single most powerful people in the United States, certainly through 2022. And then the issue of what he does in in 2024 will start to become clear. And again, the children are just byproducts of this. Coming up, what Donald Trump had to say about world leaders and some of his closest colleagues in his administration. But first. Hi, I'm Henry Zeffman, and I'm chief political correspondent of The Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to report on what's going on in the corridors of power in Whitehall and Westminster. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. By the end of his presidency, there was a sense that some of the people who had been closest to him were starting to turn away. You know, there were differences becoming much more public, particularly after the attack on on the Capitol building. His vice president, Mike Pence, tell me, in your meeting, what did he say about him? I think he says he's very disappointed in Mike Pence. He's furious with him. You know, and this became a pivotal moment of grand delusion that Mike Pence would somehow use his ceremonial position as the man who counted the electoral votes to deliver the presidency and a re-election to Donald Trump. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. 
I hope that our great vice president, our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. And Trump continues to feel that this was a terrible betrayal on the part of the former vice president. And in a way, we've heard him talking quite disparagingly about his former vice president in public before. I was even more surprised by some of the comments he made to you about Justice Kavanaugh, one of the Supreme Court judges. I mean, tell, tell me about that. He, he certainly didn't say anything good about Brett Kavanaugh and that the things that he said were pretty terrible. And this all goes back to this notion of what you owe Donald Trump. So he kept repeating, he could have abandoned Brett Kavanaugh at any point. He should have abandoned him at any point. But that he did not meant that Brett Kavanaugh owed him. Donald Trump's world is a quid pro quo world. And the fact that Brett Kavanaugh did not support Donald Trump's election challenge was to Donald Trump, you know, inexplicable. That can only be explained by Brett Kavanaugh's deep character flaws. Was there anything else he said to you that sort of surprised you that you weren't quite expecting? Donald Trump is a simple machine. So in some sense, he's not surprising. In some sense, you can just play the machine. You just feed him a name of someone who might have crossed him in any sense, and he will tell you how horrible a person is. Donald Trump kind of becomes a, a slur machine. Who's on his hit list? You name it. I mean, sometimes you get a surprising one. You know, Netanyahu, a man who has been abject in his devotion to Donald Trump, the former president, almost immediately abandoned him when he had the temerity to congratulate Joe Biden. Again and again, you just see this through Donald Trump's mouth, Donald Trump's world. Nothing impinges on that. And clearly the thing he's most obsessed by is defeat. You know, he seems to be weaponizing it now as, as a way of campaigning again. Do you think the next election, is it going to be fought on, on the defeat in the last one? Almost impossible to, to project ahead, to try to say what Donald Trump is going to do. Just remember, Donald Trump is a man who exists in the moment, right now. There are no learning lessons from looking backward, and there's little looking forward. It is just right now. So what that's going to be like two years or three years from now, impossible to say. Your books have been a worldwide hit. You've clearly met Donald Trump over the years, you know, from the period before he was president. What made you want to, to write about him? I could have decided to write about anything else. Perhaps I would have. But we live in Donald Trump's world, however peculiar and however tragic. And I must say that given everything from a writer's point of view, I mean, he's a hell of a character. I mean, this is an incredible story in many ways, a terrible story and a destructive story. But from a writer's point of view, again, this is a character not only larger than life, but a character who I think it's important that we, that we come to some understanding of. And I thought I had a unique perspective here because I was not a political reporter. As a matter of fact, I mean, I've spent a good part of my career writing about media, and Donald Trump is much more of a media figure than he is a political figure. You know, in some sense, Donald Trump is just a performer and just someone who is able to be responsive to an audience, to an, again and again and again speak to this audience and win this audience. I hear this guy that 
uh, does it not know me, doesn't know me at all. By the way, did not interview me for three, he said he interviewed me for three hours in the White House. It didn't exist, okay? It's in his imagination. There was a period in which he claimed that he had never met me. But when I went down to Mar-a-Lago, we spent quite a bit of time recalling all of the times we had spent together. In fact, going back to the 90s when I was a columnist at New York Magazine, and he used to frequently call me up. I mean, when you're writing about him, is it hard? Because he comes across as such a caricature. I mean, is there more to him? Do you have to look for for what else there might be? Or, you know, does it write itself with the character he so ably plays? No, I mean, he is the character he plays. He's nothing else beyond that. I mean, there's no interior life there. There are no deep conflicts going on. He's not waking up in the middle of the night and having an existential moment. He is singularly and, in a sense, one-dimensionally Donald Trump. You know, having said that, what becomes complicated is not him, but locating him in American public life. It's a fairly specific job function, and it's about the constant weighing of cause and effect. You know, if you do this, you're going to get reelected, or if you do this, you're going to be defeated. So the logic of what people do is clear, and people who write about politics are essentially or deciphering that logic for every political figure. So then the interesting thing becomes, well, what about a politician who doesn't have that logic, who is totally removed from cause and effect, unable to perceive cause and effect? And political reporters and many political reporters have resolved that issue by saying, well, Donald Trump is a potential despot and that's what he wants. He wants power and he's going to do whatever he takes to get power. Well, in fact, that's not true. I mean, he's not that interested in power. He's interested in in attention, in awe and adulation, in the response of the crowd. But he's interested in a whole variety of things and his motivations are largely all outside traditional political motivations. So that's why it be- he becomes an interesting character. Well, he became an interesting character for me to be able to, to present him in that context. This is the ultimate time and space mistake in politics and in history. And your books are remarkable because you seem to have such great access, you know, sort of you create a real sense of what it was like in the White House. When people talk to you for the book, is there a sense that this is the moment when they can stop playing the part and agreeing with everything? And do they just let rip? I mean, what was it like talking to people and getting them to talk honestly about working with Donald Trump? I think that everyone who has had the Donald Trump experience wants to talk about the Donald Trump experience. The people around him are no less fascinated by him and concerned about him and confused by him than everybody else. So if you talk to them on that basis about the experience rather than seeing this again as an issue of of ideology or as an issue of policy, then it's easy to have a meeting of the minds. Now that he's not president, do you think there's as much public appetite to know more about Donald Trump? You know, I think that this will be the question that will haunt the next hundred years of trying to write about American politics. The next few years will be continuing to be dominated by Donald Trump, by the question about what he's going to do, about his ability to channel a great part of the American electorate, of where his lunatic nature is going to take us. 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, journalist and author of Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency, Michael Wolfe. Landslide is published by Little Brown and it's on sale now. And you can read some exclusive extracts in The Times Online. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If there's a story you think we should be covering, if you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do get in touch. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.